Welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. You know, there was a, a saint I was reading. Thank you, Antro. It's okay. There was a saint I was reading, a church father, and he profoundly sums it up about idols. And he said, when we bow a knee before the Lord in communion, there's no room to bow before any rival or any idol. And this morning, as we're in our series, What Does the Bible Say? We've looked at last week, what does the Bible say about prayer? Um, this week, we're looking at what does God's word teach us about worship? And I love this song, and I go back to it, and um, I wasn't planning on showing it, but I woke up this morning reminded of this song. And there's some powerful lyrics in it. One being, anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking about is an idol. And I believe in this service today, you're not here by accident. This isn't a check mark for a Sunday obligation. But I believe the Holy Spirit isn't just gonna deal with idols. We're talking about how he wants to burrow deep and he wants to deal with some subtle idols. Some idols that are maybe muted in your life that um, ultimately can look like a good thing, but when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it can be set up as an idol in our life. And when we come before the body and blood of Christ, he sums the new covenant up and says that we're to do this, we're to worship him in this way, to remember him as he's this close to us, as we partake of him, as we have deep and reverential and sacred and holy communion, that this is a moment that should be like any other place and space in our life, where we orient our lives to say, my worship is more than just something that's uh, something I see. It's more than something I say, but it's the way I live. I want to reflect on the scripture. It's found in Hebrews. And it says this, it says in Hebrews 13, it says, therefore, let us offer through Jesus. If you remember last week, we talked about our, our way we pray as we pray um, by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, into God. That it's a Trinitarian prayer, it's a Trinitarian work, it's a mystery at play. The Holy Spirit's here with us. Jesus' blood gives us access so that we can touch the heart of God. And see, we don't need to be um, mistaken that you don't have to scream and shout to get God's attention. He's here, and he is a good father, and he's willing and ready to listen and to commune and to connect with us. So let this be a, a point of connection, and we learn this about worship here. It says that there should be this continual or this perpetual sacrifice of praise to God. And so we see the word proclaiming. We just did that. There's a singing element. So we're proclaiming, we're singing, we're declaring our allegiance to his name. But I think we stop there a lot of the times. Like, yeah, worship was great today. Sing, I praised. But look what it goes on to say. And it says, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need 
for these are the sacrifices that please God. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Is worship is not just singing, but it's living. And if the church can, if we can get our, our mind and our eyes and our head and our heart around this, it can transform your entire life. Because you step out of this oblig obligatory relationship with God that it's just showing up, it's turning on a song, but it's a part, singing is in part, but it's not the fullness of how we worship God. We worship God living. How we live our lives is a perpetual, is a continual worship service. And this should encourage you that everything I do is worship. And see, when we separate, see many times we separate, oh, they worship, that person worships, or as a Christian, I worship. You see, life, everybody worships. It's just a matter of what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the one true God or are you worshiping money? Are you worshiping Jesus or are you worshiping alternative lifestyles? Are you worshiping the presence of God or are you worshiping that which you can control and manipulate and that which brings you security? I'm telling you today, we're gonna to be stepping on some toes because we're going after the subtle idols that we cling to because the reality of it is, and I had a paradigm shift as I read the, the story of Exodus and began to see that this is a picture of worship, of God's people being set free. And when God sets us free, he sets us free so we can worship him in spirit and in truth. That we can worship him not the way we think he should be worshiped, but the way he teaches us and shows us of how he wants to be worshiped. And so my heart is, as we partake of the body and blood and the sermon's already started, but that you're gonna go deeper in your place of worship and you're gonna see God speak to you. You're gonna see him in his loving kindness. I read something else from a church father and it said ancient worship was done in obedient love. And that's the place I wanna get to is everything I do, it's obedient love to the Father. So Jesus, we just reflect for a moment. Father, right now, if we can, just lift your hands. We say, Holy Spirit, we give you access to our lives, our hearts. I heard it said that the human heart is like an idol-making factory. It's always looking to take our attention, our affection off that which is greater and to seduce us to that which is less than. Well, Father, we say, Holy Spirit, our helper and our healer, heal us in the place of where we have to manipulate to get control. Heal us in the place where we don't fully trust you or want your security in our life, but we have security in other things and other relationships and other people. God, we want you to be primary, supreme, and Lord. Because the nature of our relationship with you is that no rivals or idols can be in our lives. It's all in or all out. It's all or nothing. So Father, we ask, before we partake of your body and your blood, that you begin to search our hearts for idols. 
and I believe in the service, you're going to say, yep, there's an idol. Yep, let's address this. Holy Spirit, convict me. God, we give you permission to burrow deep this morning and say, this idol has to go. Cling to me, trust me, adore me, walk with me, talk with me, enjoy me. Because anything less than is bondage. We want to be a free people worshiping you the way you teach us and show us to worship. If you take of the body, said that this is a reminder of the new covenant, that it's his body broken for you in Jesus' name. As we take the blood, we thank God that the blood of Jesus still has power, that the new covenant that he made with us. A covenant is simply this. It's saying that I'm all in. Are you all in? It's both parties saying, I'm all in to you, Jesus. And I know you are all in with me. So Father, before we partake of your blood, we do this imperfectly, but we strive to be all in with you. His blood poured out for us and partake of the blood. Jesus, we thank you for the mystery, the sacrament of communion, that it is a tangible sign of an invisible reality taking place as we partake, as we commune, as we lean in, that this is the seat and summit of what we gather around is your church, is your precious body and your precious blood. We're image bearers. That Jesus, in Colossians 1.15, it says that he is the image of the invisible. Here, he is the picture of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. We thank you that Jesus reveals who God is. So Father, take us deeper as we open your word today. Show us those idols and work on our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, you can be seated and just want to welcome everybody tuning in this morning online. We got a lot of people sick today, got a wedding happening today, so um, several are, are missing. But we thank you that you're tuning in and apart and pray that um, God deals with you. I, I, what's neat about technology is the Holy Spirit isn't bound to a room, isn't bound to a space, but he can touch and a transfer can happen even outside of the tangible um, being in a room. Obviously, it's best to be gathered together, and worshiping together and being encouraged together. Um, but before we jump in, I want you to check out the video at introduce our series, and uh, then we'll jump into God's Word in the book of Exodus.
you know, as a, as a Bible church, we've got to understand that we're not God's editors, we're God's messengers. And we live in a world today that is editing the message of God, that is downplaying it, that is making it more palatable, that is taking uh, truth that is meant to be shared in its entirety, in its full text, in its fullness, and in its context, and trying to make it in a way that uh, we can swallow it and grasp it. Now, don't get me wrong. I communicate here as I preach. There has to be clear, good communication of God's word. Um, there shouldn't be anger uh, when we're speaking and ministering and, and preaching. There should be a, a love for God's house and, and a righteousness that exists. But at the same time, we live in a world today that does not know God's word, that is biblically illiterate, that does not, is not bound or motivated uh, by a biblical worldview. And so we have so many opinions, so many understandings, so many topics um, that we say is God, but is it really God and does it line up with the word of God? And throughout this series, my heart is, is that we addressed these different topics and we're going to work our way into them. We're starting with things that are um, of utmost importance in, in our walk with God, prayer. Do you have a prayer life? We talked of last week that um, there's three types of prayer. There's contemplative prayer. There's vocal prayer. There's spontaneous prayer that God gives us different ways to pray and different ways we can engage with him through prayer. And one of the things I love about contemplative prayer is it's this deep knowing and sense of having adoration. And where I want to transition from last week into this week is with this statement, is adoration brings invitation. That when we adore him, when we sit and reflect and look to him and receive what he has to say and what he wants to do, is imitation should be the fruit of that time. As I said, Colossians 1.15 talks about how he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is. So when we say we want to pray, we want to worship, we want to, to dig in deeper to who God is and how we're to be like him, when you spend time in adoration of Jesus in your word, worshiping, is there should be a transfer that happens of fruit in your life to, to, to where people see, where you see, most importantly, I'm becoming more like him. I'm looking more like him. I'm now sent into the world for people to see Jesus in my life. And when we look at the topic of worship, as we've already established and discussed, is it's not just singing, but it's living. Everyone is worshiping. It's just, it's taking it, stripping it back. What are you worshiping? And how are you worshiping? You know, I love worship too because it's not something that's just external, like when we come in church and we praise and we sing and we lift our hands, but there's an internal work that's happening as well. It's not just something that's public, that people can see a heart change, that it's a physical sign of a heart changed when we worship, but it's also something private that has happened within us. And see, worship always starts from inside out. And when we worship without an inside-out approach, then it's just a lip service. It's just a show. It's not something that is reflecting a inner life change that has happened. And so as we approach the heart of worship and we sing it this morning, I'm coming back to a heart of worship. 
What does that song imply? That we can walk away from a true, real heart of worship. So wherever you're at in your walk, wherever that parameter is showing, there's spaces and places in our lives where we need to come back to worship. We need to come back to communion with God. And when we think of idols, and I want to define in a deeper way what uh, idols are and, and understanding them. And I love this definition is an idol is nothing more than God's rival for your heart. So there's different rivals, and in the same language and understanding and conversation, idols and rivals would be talked about. We sing that song, What a Beautiful Name It Is, and and I think we all love that part of the song that says, you have no rival. So as we're worshiping him, we're reminding ourselves that there is no other rival that can compare to the name of Jesus. Because here's the reality and the big idea is every time we worship, we are clearing idols out of our life. When we worship God, we're reminding ourselves that this idol does not have supreme authority, does not have my supreme affection, it does not have my supreme lifestyle, but it all should be oriented toward God and how I worship and why I worship. And so we go through this life and we have to be continually evaluating Where are idols trying to come up and rob that place that is only meant for God? You know, when you think about our two relationships, really, that that cannot exist with rivals. Obviously, it's our relationship with God. And then it's a marriage. If you're going to have a healthy, whole, sound marriage, um, what is intrinsic to that relationship is rivals and idols cannot exist. Think of it this way. If I were to begin putting time in another relationship outside of my wife, then that would over time become an idol because that attention was never meant to go there. And the same is vice versa in our marriages and in, our, uh, in how we are to have fidelity in our relationship. And here's what I love about thinking of how rivals are intrinsic to a marriage is These aren't outside rules of someone who said, yeah, in order for you to have a good marriage, you can't have an idol or a rival. Ultimately, the relationship will not and cannot exist if a rival is there. And the same as in our walk with God, it's no different that how we worship him, how we walk with him, idols and rivals cannot be in the conversation. It's not how he is to be worshiped. He's not honored by that. And I think we can downplay it and not look at the seriousness of it Because almost in everything we deal with in our life, it's just haphazard, it's flippant, it's petty, and we can approach God and how we worship him and think, he's okay with this. He understands, he gets it, he, he knows what I'm walking through. But what he's coming after, because he loves us, not because he's mad at us, but because he loves us, is he wants to experience, he wants us to experience when he talks about a joy that is so full you can't even comprehend. He wants us to experience a peace that surpasses our understanding. He wants us to experience a life that is not just life to its fullest, but an abundant life. And I am convinced the reason we don't experience it to to its fullness is because we have divided hearts. Because you can't experience the fullness of these relationships with a divided heart. 
Because when you have a divided heart, you choose to give that away. And we walk through life giving these things away, honestly not even realizing it because they're so subtle, because they're so hidden, because we've groomed them, because we've grown up in them, how we've always thought about something, how we've always perceived God. And like I said, this is the place the Holy Spirit's wanting to come today to unearth and to architect and to dig up the subtle idols that are robbing us from a fullness of peace, a fullness of joy, an abundant life that Jesus promises. Let's stop giving this away and allow him to deal with it. Another definition for an idol is it's a good thing that we turn in to an ultimate thing. See, when you follow God for years and moments, seasons, experiencing his presence, have a consistency and a rhythm in your life, you'll begin to find that idols aren't the big things in life. It's not, I'm going to go commit murder. It's not, I'm going to go have this adulterous affair. It's not this um, image that I've created that I literally sit and worship. But what we'll find is it's usually good things in our life that become an ultimate thing. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it takes the place of, of God in our lives. And so this is the place we live in, and this is why we have to be consistent with him and walking with him and in rhythm with him. Because something good that God puts in our life, and I peel back the, the world of, of my life, ministry can become an idol. A good thing can become an idol. And so we have to always be looking and praying and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal even good things in our life that are, are rallying, rallying for attention to become an ultimate thing. It's an all or nothing relationship. If, as we open God's word, you can see in Exodus chapter eight, and again, this changed my paradigm of how I, I view the Exodus story as I spent time praying and, and studying. And what we see in the book of Exodus is really, it's a, it's a moment of being set free so God's people can worship. You see, when you read it, or maybe you hear the Bible story as a kid of, of Moses setting God's people free, is we can see it in just this one dimension. God's people were in bondage, now they're set free. Moses comes, sets them free, sets them free so they can walk in freedom. But you have to look at what the purpose of the freedom was. And here's really how we read it and how we remember it, I think. We'll read, then God said to Moses, go back to Pharaoh, announce to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. It's kind of how we all understand it. But what does it say after that? So that they can worship me. So we're going to see the greater ultimate supreme purpose of God's people being set free isn't just for the sake of freedom itself, but it's for worship. It's for worship. This is where God begins to go and deals with Moses and the Israelites. And as you, you can read it on your own, as you get into the negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh and you get into um, all of the uh, the, the sequence of the 10 plagues. We see how Pharaoh's heart is hardened. All of, all of the drama that's played out in the story. There comes a point where when he, Pharaoh decides to let God's people go. And Moses, and when you read it, you can kind of portray Moses as just this sly, strategic good leader because he's getting all the livestock and all the cattle to go with him. 
But when you look at the details of when this exchange is happening between Moses and Pharaoh, specifically about cattle, the livestock, the wealth, the resources, Pharaoh says, you know, take what you need as you go and head toward, you know, the promised land. But Moses says, no, we can't take what we need. We're taking it all. And he says this here as you go back and read it. We're taking it all because we don't know yet how God wants to be worshipped. So Moses goes in with an open hand. He takes everything he knows, and he's going to be prepared for when God speaks, this is how I'm to be worshipped. I'm telling you, when you read it, you can see it through the lens of worship. It begins to bring life to the story like you haven't seen. And so God is, is leading them, and this wilderness story is, is a picture of worship. We'll come back to it. I want to go to the New Covenant, New Testament. Uh, you'll see that in the, well, in Exodus 20, we can't forget this. What is the first commandment? That you're to have no other gods before me. That don't make idols and have no image, have no other gods before me. And so when we see God's heart, I have a series I preached about three years ago called The Ten Gifts, where we went and we broke down every ten Ten commandments. And I went at the angle of the Ten Commandments were gifts, not obligations, not these heavy, weighty laws, but they were gifts for how we worship God and how we have relationship with God. Take it to your marriage. Certain laws in your marriage aren't weighing you down. They're protecting you so your marriage can flourish of what to do, what not to do. The same is with the Ten Commandments. Is there laws, boundaries, gifts given to us for how we're to worship God and have freedom in that worship and experience the fullness of what God has? So you have this. You go to the New Testament, the Jesus Commandments. Jesus pretty much sums up the fullness of the Ten Commandments. In Matthew, he says, they ask him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You know it. He says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. So this is where we begin to see that it's all or nothing. It's a relationship of all, that I'm all in because he's all in with me. And we can go through this life and we can approach God in worship where we're not giving him everything, where we're not living a life that is all in. And as we gather together, my heart as your pastor is that every time you come into the house of God, you open your Bible, you worship, you talk about God's word, that you're taking, be it a baby step, you're taking a large step to say, I'm getting more all in with what God is doing, what he's saying, what he's calling me to, and how, not just how I'm supposed to live, but how I'm supposed to worship. And you have to remember, when we worship with how he prescribes to worship, there is freedom, there is joy, there is peace, and there is life that is deposited and that rests upon you. It's not this weight and this heavy yoke like we talked about last week. When we worship him, it's as though that second ox comes in where the scripture says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That he comes and he carries our yoke, he carries our anxiety, he carries that depression, that oppression. And so we see Jesus says this. He says in John 14, 15, he also sums it up. If you love me, you're going to obey my commandments. Remember the early church, the ancient church understood worship as obedient love. 
Worship was obedient love. And so as we approach God and we go deeper in our relationship with God, we don't try to take shortcuts around commandments. We don't try to just interpret what we think commandments are. We say, I love him. I'm going to now move in an obedient, loving relationship. There's going to be grace along the way because there's mistakes along the way. But you're going to see this dimension of your walk with God open up because you're striving to worship him for who he is. Here's the beauty of how God sees us as well. I want you to get this. Is God takes us as we are. Aren't you thankful that God takes you as you are? Even in your mess, in your stupidity, in your ignorance, in your bad theology, he takes us as we are. But here's what he says to us, and I think we can miss this. We love proclaiming, God, you take us as we are. And I am forever thankful for that, that there is not shame in his presence, but there is life and life abundantly we find when we enter in. So he takes us as we are, but the exchange in the conversation is, I'm taking you as you are. Will you take me as I am? See, this is the the shift of where we worship right here. I heard it said this way, there's two ways we can view God. One, we can view him as a toy. Or number two, we can view him as a twin. And I'll explain what that means. If you have kids, you know this. Kids love toys for about two days, and then that toy is broken, it's old, it's lost, boring. We could go on the list of of adjectives. And I think we can approach God as though he's this toy. We go and we get in the toy box when we need him and want to play with him or want to engage or enjoy something, and then we put it back or it's broken or it didn't fulfill that part of me that I thought I wanted or I thought I needed. And we can approach God with this this toy mentality. I was reading this too, and uh, it said as you're kind of in this mindset of God is a toy mentality, is that you can have a, if, if I can say this right, you can have a manipulationship with God where the way we approach God is we go to him thinking we can manipulate him. See, we can, just like I said, I'm all in, he's all in. Here's how a manipulationship can approach this, this stanza. Is God's all in with me. What can I get out of him now? What can he do for me? And we begin to approach him in a manipulation mindset. And see, a lot of us, we can, if we're not careful, when we worship, when we make decisions, it's with this small voice in the back of our head or in the front of our head, depending on how the degree of it, that says you're worshiping because you can manipulate, because you can twist God's hand, because you can, if I beg loud enough and sing loud enough and do all the right things loud enough, then God will bless me or provide for me or do something for me. And again, it's just this boy mentality. Another relationship I heard that has no application of the message at all, I just thought you'd find it funny, Um, is there's a rising uh, form of relationship called inflation chips, which means life is super expensive right now. Get a friend, they're your inflation chip. They help you pay for food, they help you pay for cable, they help you pay for Netflix, they help you pay for uh, gas, 
and you're, you come to an agreement and you call it an inflation ship. So if you need an inflation ship, find someone today. Maybe we can lower your costs a little bit. Um, like I said, no application to the message. Just thought you'd find it funny. But we can approach God as a toy, and then we can approach God as a twin. And I think this is, again, a subtle idol. This toy image is subtle, and this twin image is something that is, is subtle. A twin relationship can, can talk this way. I begin to make God in my image and in my likeness. God thinks how I think. He likes what I like. He votes how I vote. He dislikes like I dislike. He affirms what I affirm. He prefers what I prefer. And if we're not careful, what happens is we create our own version of Jesus. We put our own flavor of God, and we call that flavor of God Jesus. And I'm telling you, we live in a world today that is flavoring Jesus up the way that they can taste him and that they can partake of it. Because there's a lot of things in Scripture that does not taste like sugar and does not feel good when you swallow it. We kind of compartmentalize those areas and we don't touch them. We read quickly over them and we put the flavor that we can taste. I always crack up our Daniel, our, our oldest, he, he can't stand the taste of medicine. I mean, which kid does? But the minute that bubblegum flavor and we say, you want your bubblegum? He runs to the medicine and can't wait to take it because it's got a flavor that he can ingest. And see, if we're not careful, we can approach God with the flavor we put on him, and then guess who we begin to worship? The Jesus with that flavor, when that's not the Jesus that we should be worshiping. I'm telling you, this, is, this happens left and right. And this is why we've got to be sensitive and not be putting these filters and these flavors on Jesus and making a twin of ourselves. Because when we worship, and, and maybe this is a myth buster for some of us, it's a good reminder at the very least is when we come to church, when we worship, we don't come to get something, we come to give something. We're not here to get something from pastor or to get something from the worship team. Though that exchange is happening, you're gonna be fed, you're gonna grow, all those things, but you should be coming to say, how can I give? This is why in the New Covenant, first fruits is, is big, and even in the, in the Old Testament, that you don't come to worship God empty-handed, but you bring your first fruit because what does first fruit represent? It represents security. You see, when we hold on to everything, what it says to ourselves and what it says to God that I don't put you in the place of ultimate security. I've gotta have a little control for myself. I've gotta be able to manipulate the relationship and manipulate the seasons and, and, and states of my life. But when we bring a first fruit offering, when we bring our tithes, when we bring our time, when we bring our gifts and our talent and surrender them is in a place of worship, we're saying, I am releasing control, I am releasing security, and I am reminding myself that you are my ultimate security. You control and are sovereign and are providential. And what happens in that exchange, we think it's hard to give it, but what happens is a deposit of freedom comes over your life to say, I am not my own. He's all in with me and I am all in with him. And in this relationship, there should be these points of exchange that are taking place. But some of us, we can be so stingy. We can be justify every reason why we're not generous with our time, with our treasure, 
with our gifts, with our talent. And when we submit those and surrender those, when we say, I surrender all, we're not just saying, I surrender the parts of my life that I'm comfortable with surrendering, by golly. We're saying, I'm surrendering everything. And that is a scary place to be. And I'm not standing up here saying that I fully get it or fully understand it. That's why he gives us a lifetime of figuring this thing out. But we're going to do it imperfectly, but what God's heart is that we're striving to be in that place of worship. So don't treat God as a toy. Let's not treat him like he's a, a twin and create our own version of what our likes, our comforts are. You know, I was thinking of the criteria of a disciple. And Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, um, the criteria, if, if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to follow me, three things. You have to deny yourself, you have to pick up your cross, and you have to follow me. See, there's this misconception, and I've believed it at times, um, when you get to the point, first point, deny yourself, is we can quickly go to the fact of, I have to deny luxury, I have to deny material things, monetary things, that if I just kind of take this vow or this approach toward poverty or, or the absence of materials, then that's the part of being disciple. And there's whole movements that live that out and, and gain revelation from that in that manner and that way. But you have to understand Jesus is always going deeper than the surface. What Jesus is talking about here of denying yourself is he's talking about exactly what it's saying. You got to look at self, yourself. Will you deny allegiance to yourself? And will you put ultimate allegiance in me? Again, it's, it's more of a posture of your heart and your mindset, your walk, your living. Will you give complete allegiance to me? Will you deny yourself? And in that, there can become this freedom that you experience in Christ Quickly, we go toward the, the easy understanding of it. Oh, I just got to get rid of that or get rid of this or not engage with that. Those are all parts of this lifestyle, yes. But it goes and, again, burrows much deeper to say, just as we said when we understand we're saved by um, grace through faith. If you were to talk to the Apostle Paul about that understanding of faith, he would grab you by the collar and say, are you faithful? Are you loyal? Are, do you have allegiance to Jesus, or is it just lip chatter? Is it just talk, but there's no walk in your life? And so where I'm getting to, if we're going to worship him the way he desires to be worshiped, and I'm going to keep repeating this point, is we have to be all in, all our mind, all our strength, all our heart. You know, there was this study done, and uh, I want to, close with this. Uh, Corey and Bree, if you would come. If I get this name right, but it was uh, an economist at Harvard uh, by the name of Clayton Christen. And uh, the study was done, and it was he was one of the top 50 um, economists in the last 100 years. And he had a principle uh, that was highly regarded, and it was known as the 100% principle. And the principle, uh, what his thesis was, is it's easier to be 100% committed than it is 98% committed. And what he was getting to was, 
Many times we think, if I commit 100% to something, then it's going to require way more of me. But what he got to in his conclusion is, the person who is committed at 98%, when they stare face-to-face with that rival, that 2% rival, when there's a moment to decide, a moment to choose, they've not yet made up their mind 100%. And so there's going to be a conflict when it's time to choose. Versus the person that has already decided, I'm 100% in. They've chosen before the point of choice uh, looks them in the eye. And And this is many times how we are with God. Is, I mean, 98% is pretty good. And I would say, hey, if you're, do, if you're doing 98%, you're doing something right. But that's still, there's still a rival there between us and God. And again, my goal is to get you to heaven, is to get you when you meet face-to-face with Jesus, you hear that well done, good and faithful servant, and that you strived for that 100%. You didn't give him, you didn't shortchange him, you didn't just give him what was comfortable, but you said, my life, my singing and my living is a continual sacrifice of worship. This is what I love about Jesus as well. Is when these rivals and these idols begin to be addressed. They begin to be brought into the light. Because this is how Jesus works. He brings these things into the light and they get exposed. And what happens at this moment of exposure? Darkness gets drove out when light shines on it. And you can see the insecurities, you can see the false gods, you can see the, um, the things that you've put your value in. You can think of idols this way too, if, if all these successes that you have in your pedigree, in your resume, if those were to be taken away, Who would you even be? If your beauty was taken away, who would you be? Your accomplishments were taken away, who would you be? See, the Bible talks about that when we stand before Jesus, all those things will be thrown at his feet. And he's not gonna see the filter you've put on. He's not gonna see the mask that you're wearing. He's gonna see who you really are. And you see, Jesus, he tells us that we can know God as Abba. We can know him as a father, as a dad. Now, you're not gonna catch me addressing God as daddy God, okay? But there is this relationship that God is a father, that God is a dad. I was thinking about this the other day, and we went to uh, Evans Orchard and uh, Georgetown, on our day off this week. And I caught myself time and time again as there's these great play areas, fall weather was here. And I was just sitting down and just watching my kids and seeing the joy that they were having, seeing the laughter, the fun, the excitement. Is their dad just watching them? I was, I was gaining such joy watching them enjoy. And see, I believe that's how God is with us, is he takes such joy and gratitude and has such love for us, watching us have those light bulb moments, just watching us live and worship and make choices and decisions 
to say, I'm going to bring this to a place of worship. And see, when those idols are exposed, when they're brought into the light, they're brought into the presence of the one that brings the darkness out and shifts us to his beauty. When we sing that song again, what a beautiful name. We kind of think of, we're addressing God, the name of Jesus is a name that is beautiful. See, there's great mystery and there's great um, beauty, reverence that comes when we worship him. And see, beauty just isn't skin deep, right? So many times beauty gets neutered because we just look at the face of something or we look at the image of it. But beauty burrows down deep. And when you get to know Jesus, you see the beauty that is just in the name of who he is. And when you fall head, head over heels in love with Jesus, you fall out of love with the world. And this is the first path to holiness. Holiness isn't, I grip my teeth, I exit out of all these things, because here's the lie of the enemy. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The lie of the enemy is this, is he shows us a moment of pleasure. He gives us pleasure today, but gives us pain tomorrow. So when you listen to that rival that is motivated by the enemy, it's gonna look like everything you've ever wanted and say, here's your pleasure for today. But guess what holds for your tomorrow? There's pain on the other side of that. And what I want and what I sense the Holy Spirit doing here today is he wants us to allow the light to come on those idols. You know what they are. You know where you're not all in at. And you can't solve all your idol problems in one service, in one moment, but you can start there. And my heart is, is that you start here today to say, I feel the weight of your presence here. And as that weight begins to push and to squeeze, see, this is the beauty of being a spirit-filled community, a spirit-filled church, a church that gives room for the spirit, is there becomes, when you think of the glory of God, it's a weight. And that weight, God's glory, is always gonna be heavier than any rival or idol that is present in the room. And so when we say, I open myself up to the glory of God, I want his glory and his presence, a weight begins to fill your life and to fill your mind and to fill your heart to say that has to go. And the weightier thing of God begins to transplant and to take dominion in that place. You see, we live in a world, you read Genesis 1, 26 through 27, of how God gave Adam dominion. The enemy is after your dominion. He's after your creation. And he wants you to settle for the counterfeit. And if there's anything that makes me mad and angry is when I settle for a counterfeit. I settle for the thing that isn't fully God. And we do this circumstantially. We do this in choices in our life. And my heart, my prayer is, is that God deals with some idols today, but then he also fortifies and brings fortitude and some resolve so that you don't compromise for the idol down the road, that you choose today to say, I'm all in. I'm 100% with him because he loved me before I ever loved him. He gave his son before I ever gave my life. He 
has been in the business of redeeming broken, hurting, uh, messy things before I ever surrender to him. And I just want to invite you to stand. And I want to pray, and then we're going to worship. Jordan, if you just bring the lights down for a moment, I want us just to focus in on him. just bow your head bring us back to our moment of communion as we started you bow your knee before the body and blood of Christ there's no room to bow to an idol you know another term given to the first commandment or an expression of the first commandment rather is to have a magnificent obsession with the presence of God. God, we want to have a magnificent obsession with you. And when we obsess over you in a healthy way, God, you infill us, you intoxicate us, you possess us to the very core of who we are. We don't want yesterday's manna. We want what you have today. I want you to open your eyes actually for just a minute. Something I wanna say about this as well. I didn't know if I wanted to say it or not, but when you read, I think it's Exodus 32. I think I, I did put it back there with Caitlin. Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain with God. The law is being given. You know the story of what happens. Moses comes down. He finds that when he left the Israelites, they begin worshiping another God. They begin making a golden calf. And you, you kind of see this story. You know the children's version of it. But I want you to see it through the lens of worship. Um, verse 2, it says, So Aaron said they took gold rings they, from the ears of the wives and the sons and daughters. They brought them to him. They melted them down. People took the gold rings from their ears, brought them to Aaron. Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I want you to see right there. And here's the subtleness of what we can miss, of what's happening. I wrote it down. I want to, say, I want to communicate it correctly because it's, it's so good. What's happening here is they're not turning away from the God who saved them. So they're not entirely making another God and calling it something else. They're not turning away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not turning away from the God who saved them, but they're turning God into another thing. There's a big difference there. And this speaks to what we do, honestly. We don't go and make a drastic cold water in the face shift to say, I'm gonna create God, another God. We just begin to manipulate the God we know into something that's familiar. Maybe it's been a drought season. Maybe it's been a wilderness season. Maybe we're tired of waiting for Moses to come down. And so we get impatient and we begin to put our own hand and get involved in things that where God is saying, 
I've called you to wait on my presence. I've called you to wait and listen and in the waiting, spend it in adoration. All right, we can close our eyes again. I thought that was important. And this is a, a point of focus as we reflect and invite the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts and to shut down the idol making factories that exist. God, we don't wanna turn you into something you were never intended to be. Father, we ask that you sweep idols out of our lives right now. That you pick up that broom and begin to say, that's gotta go. That's gotta leave. Oh, that small piece of insecurity, I wanna heal that. God, right now, we shift our focus, our attention, our adoration to the beautiful name of Jesus. He's the one, when the light shines, the darkness has to leave. So God, the dark night of our anxiety, let the light shine and allow that idol to be broken. God, the dark night of that depression, of that place of grief that we're stuck in, of that unmet expectation, God, we ask that that idol be destroyed. Anything and everything that we put before our God is an idol. So Father, we open our heart, our mind, what's in our hands. If it is an idol, reveal it. And what we reveal, you can deal with. We're coming back to a heart of worship. We wanna be a church that worships you in spirit and in truth. We wanna have a magnificent obsession where the name of Jesus is supreme, exalted over all. Because at the end of our lives, at the end of time, the Bible says that you've given him a name above every name and that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. So Father, we are in, a, in an hour in a season of mercy and grace. We surrender that idol and it bows at the name of Jesus and it can no longer exist. It can no longer thrive. It can no longer have any power in our lives. We surrender all. Just whisper that to him, say, I surrender all. If you can be specific, whisper it to him, I surrender that insecurity. I surrender that anxiety. I surrender pride, ego. I surrender that lust. I surrender coveting. I surrender my happiness, my comfort. Now we deny ourselves and we say our allegiance, our loyalty, our faithfulness is in Christ and Christ alone. Sweep the idols out of our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we give voice to song, as we sing this over our lives, as we declare that the name of Jesus is beautiful, what a beautiful name it is, I pray that you speak to us, that you saturate us right now. Because you, when you deal with an idol, you don't leave a vacuum, you fill it with yourself. You fill it with joy, you fill it with peace, you fill it with freedom. 
So God, as we worship, allow that exchange to take place here in your presence. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.